In the previous episodes, we've established several things. Uh, first, we discussed the fact that you can differentiate Christian theology by epistemology. Uh, different Christian traditions begin with different starting premises and end up in fairly different places. Uh, and you could actually trace that to the beginning point and then follow logically from there. Uh, and then we, in the next episode, we kind of outline most of the more common models, which are the the church model that, for example, Catholics use, the Protestant model, the liberal model, the New Orthodox model, and the fundamentalist model. <clears throat> uh, and then we establish the fact that none of them do actual sola scriptura theology, at least not if by sola scriptura you mean Bible only, uh, and you don't include the church fathers, early tradition, church councils, and so on. So, um, and th this quote is actually from the from the first uh, from the very introduction. It's a, a quote by a pro Orthodox theologian, and here he argues that it's impossible to do sola scriptura theology if by sola scriptura you mean the Bible only, and um, I, it seems to be a fairly common um, opinion among theologians that a true sola scriptura theology doesn't work or it's not possible. So let me read this quote one more time and then we'll, we'll uh, go from there. It says, the idea that the scriptures are self-interpreting is patently absurd. It assumes a degree of absolute objectivity that would make the most ardent positivists cringe with embarrassment. Texts do not exist in the abstract. Yet this is exactly what the doctrine of sola scriptura assumes, a bare text that's, that somehow imposes its meaning on the reader. <clears throat> so, um, when you listen to that, when you when you read that quote, it almost seems self-evident. Like, yeah, he's right. I mean, how how is a book that is an inanimate object supposed to uh, interpret itself, to impose its own meaning, to tell you of all the possible ways you could interpret this book, this is the right way to interpret the book. So it almost seems like really it's it's kind of a lost cause. I mean, how can the Bible interpret itself? I'm here, of course, the, this whole project, the purpose of this project is to argue that no, logically speaking, there should be a way to interpret the Bible as a standalone document. Um, <clears throat> and, then, <clears throat> excuse me, and then I just, you know, I, I would just ask uh, a simple question. Think back on all the books you've read in your life, everything you've read from the time you were a child. And then think about how many times you needed somebody to be there and explain to you what the book meant. The majority of the books you've read, you've just read the books and figure out what they meant and you move on with your life. So maybe there's things are a little bit trickier than, than what uh, the, this Orthodox theologian would, would uh, expect us to, to think. Because obviously we read a lot of books and we don't depend on other people to explain the meaning of the books to us. Now, um, not all the books are like this. So, you know, to be fair, there's some books that, that really do require additional help. So, for example, if you're reading a book on a specialized topic, like let's say you picked up a, a physics books, but you don't have a, a background in physics and the book is intended for an advanced audience. So you, you read a few pages and then you realize the book makes no sense to you. You don't understand the vocabulary. You don't understand the concepts. You have no background in physics. So you're just lost, right? So in that case, yes, maybe you need an interpreter there. You need somebody to kind of catch you up with uh, the background concepts that are needed to make sense of the rest of the book. Uh, another situation is if you're reading uh, a book that's in a series. So, you know, there's volumes one through five and you picked up volume three and you start reading and you realize that it's talking about other things that happened in the previous volumes that you, you just don't know anything about. So the story doesn't make sense to you. So in those situations, yes, you need some additional help. The book wasn't meant to be taken on, on its own. It wasn't uh, a book that was uh, written to be, to be read without any additional help. So the question then is, <clears throat> what is the intent of the author in writing the book? Um, some books were intended to be standalone documents that you could pick up and understand. And then some books were intended to be, to be understood with additional help or were intended to be part of a series or were intended to, for you to have some kind of background knowledge and so on. So here's a, an analogy, an example that you could you think about. Um, like, you know, just imagine you're taking a class, pretty much any topic, you're, you're in college and you're 
you're you know taking some class in history or sociology or whatever and the professor comes in and he does his lectures and every every so often he brings in supplemental reading you know he prints out pages from different places and says okay read this and this will kind of fill in the gaps in my lectures and give you a picture of what's going on now imagine you took all the supplemental readings and and you know put punch holes in them and put them in a three ring binder and at the end of the class when everybody was studying for the test somebody came up to you and said hey uh, i was sick for most of this quarter can i uh do you have anything that I could read to catch up? Well, if you if all you do is you give him this three ring binder with the supplemental reading, that reading wasn't meant to cover the entire class. It wasn't meant to to give all the information that the professor is covering in class. It's it's supplemental. It's there to fill in gaps, but you need the rest of the lecture to make sense of the supplemental reading. But imagine that besides this three ring binder you actually took very detailed notes of everything that the, the professor said. You, you wrote everything down really clearly, really well. Well, if you give the notes and the supplemental reading to this person, they could possibly go through this whole material and you'll be almost the same thing as if you were attending the class, right? So the question is, what is the intent of the author? For the supplemental reading, the intent was filling the gaps. It wasn't meant to be taken as a st standalone collection of documents. But if you add to the supplemental reading the class notes, then yes, that actually covers the whole thing. And you could you could read it and make sense of it and you'll be the same thing as the class. Okay, so the question then that we have to deal with with the Bible is which kind of text was the Bible intended to be? Was the Bible intended to be more like the supplemental reading where there's elements there that are important and that are needed, but then there's elements outside the Bible that are also needed to make sense of the whole thing. So is that the kind of book the Bible is, or was it intended to be more like a, the standalone document where you could find all the pieces you need to make sense of it within the same, the same collection of writings? <clears throat> so a lot of people will say, well, no, the Bible probably wasn't intended as a standalone document. And you know, there's good reasons for this. You have many different authors. You know, they come from different cultures. Uh, this, this, their their writings extend over many, many centuries, and they're writing to different situations, different contexts, different audiences. So it seems just <clears throat> kind of superficially looking at the situation that maybe the book just wasn't meant to be a standalone document. Maybe it was just a series of independent messages that, that were specific to different situations. And when you put them together, you don't have everything you need to make sense of it. But I would say <clears throat> this in itself is not a defeater for the possibility that the Bible was intended to be a standalone document. And the reason is that there's ways to take independent parts and bring them together into a cohesive whole. And, and you know, some people actually do this on purpose when they write a story. You know, they'll, They'll put together a story and you just read different sections and they seem like they're unrelated to each other. But when you read all the sections, the story comes together and it makes sense. A better example is, is a mosaic. So, you know, when you're looking at, at a mosaic, assuming that it covers a, a big wall somewhere, when you first pass by and you're standing really close to the wall, all you see is different shapes and of different colors. So there might be different triangles and squares and rectangles and some are red, some are yellow, and you're thinking, what is this? this? This is just a bunch of random shapes, a bunch of random colors. And then you walk away from the wall, and as you step back, you see a beautiful picture. And you know it might be this fish, or it might be something else. A, a mosaic is an example of how you could have a whole that is made of parts that seem independent of each other. They seem, they seem not to really connect in an, in an intelligible way until you look at the whole thing. So then the question is, how do we know which one it is? How do we know whether the Bible is the standalone document or whether the Bible is more like the supplemental reading or more like the uh, this distinct parts that need additional elements to be to be to maybe to be made sense of? And the answer is there is no way to know. There there is no way to know ahead of time, as in uh, 
we don't have a way to know from the beginning or from the start which type of document it is. So what we need to do is to treat it as independent hypotheses, two different hypotheses. So you have hypothesis number one, the Bible was, was meant to be taken as a standalone document. Hypothesis number two, it was meant to be taken as separate parts. And um, <clears throat> depending on which hypothesis you go with, it, it leads to certain implications and then you work through those implications to, to figure out how to interpret the Bible. So in other words, it is not possible to demonstrate um, before actually building up your, your picture of, of, of working with a certain type of hypothesis, it is not possible to demonstrate that the first one is correct or the other one is correct, one, one or the other is correct, because you don't know the mind of God ahead of time. You don't know what God would do or which one he chose to do. So you just gotta look at both hypotheses separately and, and, and analyze them and evaluate them. Now, for most of Christian theology, the energy has been spent on the hypothesis that treats the Bible as if it wasn't meant to be a standalone document, as if it was meant to be interpreted within the context of a wider uh, sphere of knowledge that, that people gather from other sources and then connected the Bible to that in some way. Even in the Protestant context, like we've established, uh, there's this regular fide, there's this um, traditional interpretation or, or the, the writings of the church fathers that are meant to be a, the context in which the Bible is to be understood. So for most of Christian history, the Bible was not looked at the way you, you look at it, the way you approach a standalone document. And even if the people that did try to approach it this way didn't fully think through the implications of what it would mean to, to, to treat the Bible as a standalone document. So that's what we're going to do for the rest of this presentation, uh, except we're going to have to take a little bit of a detour first. But before we do that, I wanna address one more phrase in, in, the, in the quote that we read a minute ago uh, by Clark Carlton, where he's, he uses the phrase absolute objectivity. So here's the quote again. He says, the idea that the scriptures are self-interpreting is patently absurd. It assumes a degree of absolute objectivity that would make the most ardent positivist cringe with embarrassment. I wanna zero in on that, that statement right there, that uh, terminology, because if you think about it, nobody is claiming absolute objectivity. None, none of the other models. In other words, the, <clears throat> the Catholic model is not claiming absolute objectivity. The Protestant model, which includes the writings of the church fathers is not claiming absolute objectivity uh, and any of the other models either. So there's no reason to expect absolute objectivity of a theology that's based on the Bible alone either. Nobody is being held to that standard. So there's no reason to hold this particular model that I'm describing here to that standard. So let's just keep that in mind as we go on. Um, so again, what we're trying to determine is, in fact, we've already decided the Bible could have been meant as a standalone. It could have been meant as, as multiple, um, meant to be taken alongside other true sources. And we're looking at the hypothesis that the Bible is a standalone and we're thinking through the implications of the hypothesis. However, we need to take <clears throat> a quick detour, which will turn out not to be so quick actually, but unfortunately we have to go through this because um, this is a question that we need to address before we could even think about this properly. So the question is, um, we've talked a little bit um, Actually, I'm at this point. No, I, I've, I did mention, I did mention the idea of inerrancy in the past in the context of the, of the fundamentalists. Um, but the question is, does sola scriptura theology need the assumption that the Bible is inerrant? Okay, and and the the argument that people pose is, if you don't assume the Bible is inerrant, then who decides which parts are correct and which parts aren't? I mean, people could just pick and choose, right? So if you say, well, the Bible, the Bible is, is almost perfect, but it has a few errors. And I think the error is that part that talks about me stealing, right? So then I can excuse myself in going out and stealing whatever, because I think that part of the Bible is an error, right? So the argument that fundamentalists usually bring up is that 
unless you assume the Bible is inerrant, then essentially you've you've pretty much destroyed the 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 capacity of the entire book to do what it's meant to do because now any part of it could be an error and you just don't know which one it is. But that is a bad way to think about it. And I'll explain why in a minute. But first let's ask this question. Is it possible to have sola scriptura theology without inerrancy? And the answer is yes. And it could be simply demonstrated in that um, we work with errant documents all the time. And there's only it's only once you surpass a certain threshold of error that it becomes difficult to make sense of things or to use them properly anymore, right? So as an example, um, think about, uh, you know, let's say you purchase some piece of machinery, something that's fairly complicated. So you need a good instruction manual, right? So, you know, you, you, you bring this thing home and you have to assemble it yourself and you read these instructions and you take the next four or five hours and you, you build your device and everything's fine. Okay, but now let's run an experiment. You know, let's let's you know find several thousand people in our in our that are that we're gonna use as guinea pigs, and we're gonna take the instruction manual and then run it through a random error generator. So we put this manual into the computer and it's, it prints out a new copy of the manual that has random errors. And then we give it a threshold. So we say, okay, give it 5% error, give it 10% error, give it 20% error. And then we send the device out and we figure out how many people are still able to, to build the device and what degree of error uh, do we find that it becomes too difficult to do anymore. So can, can people still make sense of the, the manual if it has 10% error or 20% error, right? Now, obviously there's people out there that are gonna be able to build the device even if the entire thing was in error. And there's people out there that are not gonna be able to build a device even with a perfect manual because they're just incapable of building stuff. But the large majority of people depend on the manual. And then we could actually do a test and to see how, how much error people can, can put up with, how much error can people still um, tolerate before they, they run into problems building or, or doing what they need to do. Now, obviously, you know, this is just a hypothetical example, but clearly there's some degree of error that is acceptable. You know, I don't know if it's 10%, I haven't done the experiment, so it might be 10% or it might be more like 20%, it might, might be less like two or 3%, but there's some degree of error that, that people can tolerate before things become so confusing that they're not able to do the task that they need to do, right? So when it comes to scripture, logically speaking, there sh it should be possible for the Bible to contain some error and for people to still to make sense of it in spite of it, regardless of you know, the fact that you know, we don't know which parts are correct and which parts aren't. God can look at it and, and say, look, yeah, there's some errors in there, but it's not enough to throw people off. They could still make sense of it. Okay, so errancy or inerrancy is actually not a requirement for sola scriptura theology. And I used this picture before, but I'm just bringing, bringing it up here. Um, for obviously for people on the podcast, you cannot see the picture, but there's a picture that has a sola scriptura threshold on a scale of confidence where I say, you know, people that are 100% confident in, in the Bible's accuracy. And then you go down that scale to maybe 90% or 80%. There's some threshold there that's where you're still able to do sauce theology, even if you allow for some degree of error. And in fact, I, uh, I, I would argue that inerrancy, this idea of inerrancy that is so common in conservative evangelical circles is one of the main things that has sabotaged sauce theology for several reasons. First, because it has made this type of theology an easy target for, for critical scholarship, right? There, there's all these different things they could pick on and immediately, if you don't allow for any errors, it throws people off and people get confused, right? Uh, another reason is even in making sense of what the Bible is saying, when you, when you treat the Bible as an inerrant document, it doesn't give you enough leeway to, to bring all the parts together and to, to get a good picture of what it's saying because uh, it just sometimes it just appears like things are contradicting each other. But when you have that, little bit of flexibility there, you could bring all the parts together and find a way to make sense of them. Okay, 
Now, before I go into this a little bit further, um, I want to talk about the fact that sometimes uh, theologians are actually philosophically predisposed to the idea of inerrancy. And we're going to talk about this in not the next episode, but the one coming after that. Um, <clears throat> so people have different views of God and the nature of God and, and how God is and, and also about the nature of man and, and how exactly we are, like what is, what is the whole reality of being a human being and because of how they look at God and how they look at humanity they have different views of how God reveals and inspires prophets so for a lot of Christians a lot of Christian theologians that come from um, a more orthodox or traditional or historic understanding of theology they have a view of God where God is seen as suprapersonal to use kind of a, I don't know if it's it's necessarily a meaningful term, but it, it is being it has been used in theology, where where God sort of transcends the 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 normal aspects of what we understand um, persons to be as far as looking at ourselves as human beings. So they have this this concept of a, of a God that is very different than us, and and because of this, he doesn't communicate with us directly, but actually imprints, has a way to imprint the revelation on the human soul and to control the individual in the writing of the prophetic writings, right? So basically um, God takes a hold of somebody, you know, Moses, uh, Isaiah, whoever the person is that is writing the Bible, he imprints certain knowledge in their mind or in their soul, and then the prophet writes that down and because of that it's it's inerrant it's perfect because it has been sort of controlled uh, by god directly right but other christians have a somewhat different view of god where they view god as a personal being and because god is a personal being he communicates directly with individuals just like two people communicate with each other but when people communicate with each other they they're um communicating by using their cognitive faculties, right? They're, you know, one person is, is thinking about what to say and how to say it. Then the person is hearing what the other person's saying and, and is trying to make sense of it. And the minute you look at inspiration in this way through, by, by God communicating the way people communicate rather than the way uh, some people imagine God communicating through the soul, when you look at it that way, then that leaves room for error because obviously the prophet's listening to what God is saying, but you know he first has to make sense of it. Then he has to find a way to explain it to to the people he's he's writing to, and maybe you know he's he's using a, a an illustration or a way of of bringing his point across that maybe makes sense to that immediate audience there, but no longer makes sense to us. So there's all these different things that could get in the way of the communication process because God is not directly controlling every aspect of this revelation and inspiration process. Okay, but nonetheless, even if we assume that God isn't directly controlling individuals, like in the inerrancy scenario, there's other ways for God to still control the whole process enough for it to be possible to have a sola scriptura theology. So what are some ways that God seems to have controlled the process in scripture. Well, he chooses the messengers, right? So in the Bible, you don't see ever, any random person get up and say, hey, I'm going to be a prophet. So they go to God and God says, okay, I'll go ahead and send my messages through you. No, it's always that God chooses people, right? So one of the first ways that God controls the, the prophetic uh, element is by picking the people that he's going to use to communicate through. Okay, so now... Another thing that God does, uh, there's at least one example in scripture of it is when a prophet makes a mistake, he sends back correction. So uh, the famous example of this is uh, Nathan with David and with the temple, right? So David comes to Nathan and says, hey, I'd like to build the temple. And Nathan says, go ahead. The Lord is with you. And then God, God comes to him and says, no, go back and tell David that he's not allowed to build the temple. His son is going to do it and so on. So Nathan has to go back and correct himself, right? So God can 
come back and can correct the prophet when the prophet made a mistake or misunderstood, or maybe the prophet took a general principle that he had learned from, from previous revelation from God and applied it to a specific situation, but didn't realize that he, he, he didn't apply to that specific situation, right? And God came back and corrected him. Another way that God controlled the inspiration process is by selecting which writings he had preserved. Uh, the Bible talks about many other writings that we don't actually have in the canon of scripture. So for example, Paul uh, is mentioning different letters that he's written to other churches uh, that are not preserved. So we don't know what happened to them. They were lost at some point, but they didn't make it into the canon. So that's that could possibly be another way for God to maintain control over what gets transmitted and what doesn't get transmitted. So, you know, an individual prophet might have several writings, but only two or three or whatever of them get preserved. Um, and the other writings maybe get lost to history. And then if there's something there that was appropriate at the time, but isn't appropriate for the, the rest of history, then God makes, makes sure it doesn't get incorporated into the canon. Or another way to control the process is by future revelation. So let's say somebody at this point in history says something and it's not very clear, or maybe the prophet didn't understand things correctly. Uh, then further down the line, some other prophet comes along and, and brings some correction to the previous misunderstanding and others continue to, to um, reinforce that correction. Well, it's possible for us to still say, well, okay, maybe this person was, wasn't very clear, but we still understand what God is trying to say because we have all this other um, future prophets that came in and, and gave us a better picture of what's going on on this particular subject. <clears throat> so all these different ways are ways for God to deal with, with errors that might come into scripture or that might come across in the revelation and inspiration process that don't involve inerrancy. So they don't involve God possessing the, the mind and soul of the prophet to the point where the prophet is incapable of doing anything except exactly what God wants him to do the way um, inerrantist supporters would argue. All right, so how do we work with errancy? How do we deal with errors in scripture? Um, you know, how do we make sure that we don't assign error to a part of the Bible that's actually meant to be taken as truth? And actually, this is not a difficult question because in today's world, we deal with erroneous stuff all the time. We have ways to, to find or make sense of things that contain errors. Um, pro probably the, the simplest way to, to make, give an example of this is things in science, right? When you do experiments and you collect large amounts of data, there's always anomalies. There's, you know, I have a graph, um, for those that cannot see it, I have a graph here with a bunch of points on a, on a, on a graph and most of the points, they, they show a trend. So you could draw a line by more or less following the average position of the majority of the points. But there's some points that are way off in a completely different direction. So basically those are anomalies. Now, if we didn't have sufficient data, we, we would probably think, oh, wow, the, the plot goes in this direction or it goes in the other direction. Um, but because we have sufficient data, we're able to kind of see the general direction of the data and determine what the general trend is. So it's not that difficult to, to work around errors as long as the errors don't um, represent the majority of the data. You know, if 90% if of your data is erroneous, you're, you're not gonna find the correct answer. But if you could do a, a, an experiment and collect sufficient data and, and have general confidence that the majority of the data should be correct, then the anomalies are not gonna bother you. They're not gonna uh, be a cause for you to lose confidence in, in the data as a whole. So because of this, a key element of um, a sola scriptura theology that is not based in inerrancy is you have to use the entirety of the data. I mean, you, you have the canon of scripture and you cannot just pick and choose and focus your attention on some parts or the others. You have to rely on everything because you need, you need as much data as you could get to be able to get a sense of what the general uh, trend is in this, in this body of data. 
you know, if you're doing an, if you're following an inerrancy scenario, then it doesn't matter as much if you're going to use the whole body of data because it's all correct. There's no problems anywhere. There's no anomalies. So no matter where on the on the graph you're working, the 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 way you're going to plot your line, it's always going to be the same because everything is exactly the way God wants it. But if you're working with limited errancy, which is what I'm calling this particular approach, then you have to work with the entire body of, of scripture to, to make sure that you're, you're coming to the correct conclusions. So basically, um, a sola scriptura theology is a canonical theology if you reject inerrancy. And I would argue that there's many reasons to reject the concept of inerrancy. First of all, because it, like I said, it creates, uh, it, it makes us easy targets for, for critics. Uh, it, it ends up in, in raise, raising up contradictions and essentially it hasn't worked. I mean, people have been trying to do inerrant theology forever and it just doesn't seem to work. I mean, they can't, they can't arrive at uh, any kind of consensus on anything you know, everybody basically just reads reads the, the scripture the way they want to, and they there there doesn't seem to be a a way to to kind of rein everybody in into one single conclusion. So, I would say, I think we we've had enough um, attempts in Christian history to work with inerrancy to the point where we're we're at a point where we could safely dismiss inerrancy as a, as a possible approach to Sola Scriptura. And, and we can focus instead on doing Sola Scriptura theology where we allow for, for limited inerrancy and go from there to see if at least this possibility can work because the other one hasn't worked yet. Um, but again, if we do that, then we need to treat the, the scripture as a full body of, of data. Now, really quick, uh, because I know as I'm talking about this, somebody's going to say, well, which canon do you use? Because there's so many different possible canons. There's so many different things, you know, and then, uh, by the way, uh, you know, if you're using the canon, then you're actually going by the church because the church is the one that decided on the canon and all this stuff. So I, I mostly dismiss those arguments because at least to me, they, they don't seem to have much way to be taken seriously. Uh, first of all, as far as which canon do you use? Regardless of all the possible canons or collections of books to use, if you look at Christian history, the majority of Christians have, have used one of two possibilities. You know, there's the Catholic version and the, the Protestant version. And if we really can't sort those two out, then, hey, have two different versions of Sola Scriptura theology. That's still much better than the thousands of versions of Protestant theology that relies on the church fathers, right? And it's, it's better than who knows how many versions of every other mode of theology, right? So we don't need to get caught up in that. If we can't figure out which version of the canon is correct, then just do the, do the process in bo with both versions separately. Uh, and the other argument about the church being the one that chose the canon, uh, I guess the easiest way to do it is with, with, a, with an example. Now think about a coach that goes around to all the different high schools in some, in some city and sits there and watches basketball games, right? Watches the various teams, you know, um, that are at each high school, that watches and plays several games and then picks out the best players in all those teams. He goes and grabs those players and, you know, maybe <clears throat> offers to, to pay them for whatever, to pay them to play and then brings them all together and puts together a really good team using all the best possible players that he could find and then goes around and wins a bunch of championships, right? Now, in that situation, you're not really saying a whole lot about the coach. I mean, essentially the coach just recognized the fact that a, a bunch of players were good players and brought them together. If, if the, the same coach went to some school and took whatever players he had available and then worked with them really hard and trained them to be the best possible players and then went and, and, and <clears throat> won with them a bunch of basketball championships, then yes, you could give credit to the coach for his ability to, to take average players and make him into champions, right? But if all he did is went around and he picked the best players, then of course he's gonna win. I mean, he could have probably just put them together and left and they would have still won, right? So 
the church taking credit for bringing the, together the canon only makes sense if, if the canon wasn't, the, the individual books of the canon weren't books that were already um, highly regarded by, by Christians to begin with. And you know, they, they already had this, this special characteristic. So anyway, for me, that argument just doesn't seem necessary. And I don't, I don't feel like I need to, to spend a lot of time dealing with that. Uh, there is such a thing as a biblical canon and we can work with that canon and treat it as a body of data and then go through it, uh, allow for possible errors, but just start with this assumption that the level of error doesn't pass a certain threshold that makes it illegible. Remember we talked about that example where the computer generates so many errors that there comes a point where people just can't make sense of it anymore. Well, we have to assume the Bible hasn't passed that threshold yet because otherwise we don't have a basis for this theology. But to do it, we could say, look, there's some errors, we don't know how much, but it just hasn't passed that critical threshold. So we're gonna go on and, and work with that assumption as we, as we do our soul scripture and theology. Okay, so here's several other implications when you allow for limited errancy. It ends up affecting how you do your exegesis. <clears throat> now, just a little bit of history when it comes to exegesis. There came a time in history after the Protestant Reformation where people started realizing that they were going through the Bible and reading passages, and they were actually reading things into the passage because of all the things they had learned in the past. You know, So maybe they had read commentaries, maybe they had um, heard explanations from previous theologians, and they came to realize that every time they read something, they were actually superimposing a, a previous meaning on the text rather than looking for the, for the meaning of the text itself. So they started looking for ways <clears throat> to isolate passages and to, and to give them a chance to speak for themselves rather than to force a meaning on them from the beginning. And overall, this is a good idea. So when we read the Bible, it's a great idea to go and do your best to, to try to see what the Bible is actually saying rather than assume it's saying something you already believe it to, to be saying from, what, from whatever else you've heard in the past. Now, this isolationism uh, where, where individual passages were kind of separated from every other context and just given a chance to speak for themselves, um, it was taken even further with the rise of higher criticism because now there was no longer a there was no longer that assumption of, of supernatural control over the process, right? So basically, the, the higher critics began treating the Bible like the Bible is just any common book. So there's no Holy Spirit that's guiding anything. You know, every individual writer is just writing whatever they're they're writing of themselves. So then this this concept of isolation in exegesis became even stricter and 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 people be, began to, to focus even, even closer on the specific text rather than any kind of background, any kind of context, anything else. Um, and then for, further on, like later on in history, when the fundamentalists came on the scene, they've actually adopted some of, the, some of this exegetical principles, even from the liberal side of Christianity, because it fell in line with their idea of inerrancy. Now, if the Bible is inerrant, then it shouldn't affect you if you isolate a single passage and you just look at that and not anything else because that passage is saying exactly what God wants it to say. So if you figure out what the author intended to say in that passage, what you're learning is exactly what God intended the author to say in that passage. But again, if you're dealing with limited errancy, the, the, the process I'm describing here, you're no longer certain that the author relate exactly what God intended him to say. You know, it's because there's this room for human error, it's possible that maybe the author didn't fully understand, didn't fully make sense of the situation. <clears throat> and maybe that particular passage isn't saying things exactly the way God would have had him said. So now you have to kind of step back and um, juggle sort of this, this two elements now. You've got to have this, you know, there, in, in theology, we we've had this phrase for a while, the hermeneutical spiral, and it's usually used 
in a historical sense between the past and the present, but you could have this spiral between the individual passages and the, the canon as a whole. So one of the implications of working with the Bible as, a, as an errant document, and yet still working with the assumption that it was intended to be a standalone document, is they have to go back and forth between the exegesis, exegesis of a passage and <clears throat> the message of the scripture as a whole. Um, otherwise, it's just not going to work because you're actually using different presuppositions than some of the other um, methodologies that I've described here. Okay, so then there's, there's other implications of this. Uh, one of them is the historicity of scripture. Now, by historicity, I don't mean whether the, the Bible is historically accurate, but I just mean that the Bible is a historical document. It happened throughout history. It was written throughout history and it was conditioned by the history. So whenever God will speak to, to a prophet and the prophet would write something down, what he wrote would end up remaining part of the tradition of, of the people of Israel and later of, of the apostles um, for future generations. So, you know, if, if a prophet came at a certain time, like Moses, and he wrote a bunch of stuff, and then later, two, three, four hundred years later, another prophet like Samuel came on the scene, that prophet was familiar with everything that was written in the past, and his audience, the people he was writing to, were relatively familiar with much of previous revelation, and he was writing in that context, but they weren't familiar with any future revelation that was to come. Um, if the Bible were inerrant, it wouldn't matter, right? Because God would just have every individual write exactly what he wanted to write, and that would be it. But if we're working with this notion of inspiration where God is not uh, controlling the prophet in everything he writes, but is actually speaking to their uh, to their to them and and reasoning with them and trying to help them to understand the message, <clears throat> and the prophet is relaying the message to the audience the best he can, then we have to allow for for the history historical conditioning of the inspiration process, and we have to take the process through through, through its chronological steps. Um, and this is important because one of the tendencies of Christians has been to jump into scriptural interpretation through the New Testament because the New Te Testament is easier and because the New Testament has certain hermeneutical keys that allow us to make sense of the Old Testament. But the problem with that is that the people that <clears throat> the New Testament was written to already had all this background history in the Old Testament and they understood the New Testament writings a certain way while we understand it through a whole different lens. So if we want to make sense of the Bible within this limited heresy paradigm, we have to follow it chronologically and allow the Bible to develop its own context so that by the time we get to the New Testament, we can interpret it within that context. And then we can go back and read it a second time by using the Old Testament informed understanding of the New Testament we've just arrived at to reinterpret the Old Testament. So basically it's, a, it's an old, new, old, sequence of interpreting scripture if we're allowing for limited errancy. All right, so now that's about all I'm going to say about this detour part of the message, which actually ends up being the majority of the, the presentation here. But it's something to keep in mind because uh, like I said, if we conflate sola scriptura theology with inerrancy theology, we're, we're just, we're, this theology is not going to take off. It's not going to make sense. It's not going to be able to, to actually come together into anything. It will just collapse like every, every previous attempt. But if we allow for limited errancy, there's a chance that we can actually make sense and put this together. All right, so now that that was said, let's move on to the next part. What do we do with standalone documents? How do we interpret them? How, what do we need to be able to make sense of standalone documents? Well. What you usually need is some kind of unifying thread that brings the parts together. <clears throat> so in my example at the beginning of this lecture, I said, you know, if, if somebody gives you the supplemental reading for the class, that's not enough to make sense of what was discussed in class. 
But if they give you the lecture notes, the lecture notes tie everything together so you can make sense of the whole thing and you'll be equivalent to having attended the class. Now, sometimes you also need uh, a frame of reference for making sense of, of what you're reading. So in, this, in the same example here, you need the prerequisite classes. So for example, if, if the class you're taking is some advanced class in any given subject, you know, it's a, it's a senior level course in history or mathematics or whatever, the class notes and the supplemental reading would be enough if you've had all the prerequisite classes, then you would make sense of what this class is about. But if you haven't even had the prerequisite classes, then you need something else that will catch you up to the, the same frame of reference that every other student in the class has. And then you could get a hold of the class notes and you could get a hold of the supplemental reading. And it would be as if you attended a class and maybe you could take the test with everybody else on finals day and still get a good grade, even though you were never there in person listening to the teacher present. So essentially for, for any book to be able to function as a standalone document, <clears throat> you need something like a unifying thread and you need this frame of reference to, so that you're on the same page with what the author's talking about. Now, uh, the, the best way I found to explain this concept is to use, to use an example. And the example that I, I, I find the, the easiest to, to work with is a movie, which is fairly popular, but um, maybe not everybody's familiar with it. It was it's the movie called The Matrix and it came out somewhere in the late 90s, I don't know, 98 or something like that. So it's been over 20 years. Now I'm going to be kind of going into the movie a little bit. So spoiler alert, if you want to watch it for yourself, then maybe pause, it, pause this here and go watch the movie first. Or you could go to Wikipedia and get like a, a detailed description of the movie or whatever, whatever suits you. But I'm assuming most people that watch this probably have seen the movie. Now, I want you to picture watching the movie, The Matrix, as if you had seen it for the first time and as if you had not heard anything about the movie. So you're basically, have, you have no idea what to expect when you watch, when you turn on the movie and the movie started running. Okay, so if you were sitting there and the credits came on the scene, you know, the first scene that happens, you know, there's, there's all these weird letters on the screen. There's, there's some stuff that doesn't make much sense. And then you see a young lady sitting in front of a computer and talking to someone about who knows what, it doesn't quite make sense at this point. But at the same time, you see a bunch of police, police officers trying to break into the room where this lady is to arrest her. And there's probably 10 of them or so, 10, 10 police officers. So the police officers break the door and up to this point in the movie, everything seems perfectly normal. So you're thinking, hey, this is just a normal story about you know, you know, police apprehending criminals or whatever. And the police kick in the door and they rush into the room with their guns and they tell the lady, don't move, you're under arrest, something like that. I don't remember the exact <clears throat> script. Now, as this is happening, the lady gets out from her chair, turns around and then jumps in the air and just hovers there for several seconds, maybe up to five seconds, just hovers in the air. Then she starts running around the room on the walls and beats up all the police officers and leaves. Now, immediately, if you are sitting there and you have no idea what this movie is about, immediately you, your, your brain starts to recalibrate your interpretation process. So after this point, you were thinking, hey, this is just a normal story, you know, some normal police, police versus uh, bad guys type of story. And now all of a sudden this lady is floating in the air and she's running sideways on the wall. So immediately, you know, this is not a normal, a normal situation, like a normal world uh, where things happen that happen in everyday life, right? So you start coming up with, with, with speculative ideas of what could possibly be happening. Like you might say, hey, uh, maybe this is a superhero movie. Like maybe this lady is some, some new version of, X-Men or, or Superman or whatever else, Wonder Woman. Um, or if not, maybe this is some kind of uh, magical realm, like maybe 
you know, something like a, a version of Harry Potter for adults or something like that. Uh, or you might say, well, um, maybe this is, um, you know, one of those kind of like one of those old Chinese movies, you know, where people fly around and stuff because they're super good at Kung Fu. So they have all these extra powers. Who knows? It's, it's something like that. So, so you instinctively recalibrate your in interpretation process because this is clearly not an everyday kind of a situation. People don't get up and float in the air and then run around on the walls. All right. So you, you continue to watch this movie now with the expectation that this is not a real world scenario. This is some kind of fantasy world. But if your guess about what is happening is wrong, it affects the way you interpret everything else. So <clears throat> as the movie progresses, <clears throat> the and it's not very much further into the movie, we're actually clued in as to what is happening. So instead of leaving us to guess, they just pretty much pull the curtains back and tell us what's going on. So <clears throat> the frame of reference for the movie or what you might call the metaphysics of the movie is that this whole thing is happening inside a simulated reality. So basically these people are not in the real world, they're living inside, a, inside of a very realistic computer program. And in this computer program, everybody thinks it's the real world, but it's not. Essentially, you know, they're, the whole thing is fake and, and they're existing in the simulation and they're, they're going about their lives not realizing that they're part of a simulation. So that's the, that's the frame of reference for them. That's the, the metaphysics of the movie. That's, that tells you what is going on. Um, the next part, the unifying thread or the macro narrative for the movie <clears throat> is the fact that the reason all these people exist inside a computer simulation is because sometime back in the past, there was a war between human beings and intelligence machines that they had created that had rebelled against us or that had tried to take over the world. So when, when people try to destroy the machines, the machines enslaved humanity um, in order to, anyway, the, the story gets a little more complex. Basically, uh, humans blew up, uh, covered up the sun so the machines wouldn't get any solar energy. And in order to, to make up for that, they, they turned human beings into batteries and using their electrical fields and then basically enslaving them in this matrix just to keep them preoccupied and keep them alive so that they could take advantage of their energy. Anyway, that's, that's the story of the movie. If you want to make more sense of it, read, read, the, read it or watch it. But what I want to focus on here is that there's these two elements that are needed <clears throat> to make sense of the story. And once you get those two elements, everything else comes together. <clears throat> so element number one, you need to understand the metaphysics of the movie. They're, <clears throat> excuse me, they're inside a computer simulation. And... <clears throat> And element number two, you need to understand the story, the, the, the big picture of what is happening. And that's the fact that they're in this war against the machines and they were enslaved and, and put into this computer program. So you have to know the what and the why. If any book can be taken as a standalone, then you need to have these two elements to make sense of the book. You need to have this unifying thread or the, the macro narrative of what you're, what you're reading. And you need to have the metaphysics or this frame of reference, especially when you're dealing with something that could be very different than the way we understand real life. All right, so scripture as a standalone document. Like we said, there's a unifying thread, there's a macro narrative. Um, Metaphysics is kind of a technical word, so let me just take a little bit of time to explain it. Basically, <clears throat> we exist in a world that is physical. You know, we, we look around and we see things and then we go over and touch them and pretty much everything that we experience is physical in some way. But the question is, is there something beyond the physical world? You know, are there spirits? Are there angels? Are there gods? Is there anything behind the scenes? That's the metaphysics. So the metaphysics has to do not only with this world, but with everything that exists. And it also has implications about the nature of this world based on what it assumes about the rest of reality, okay? So the question then is when we come to the Bible, 
if, if we're gonna treat it as a standalone document, we have to find a way to get our metaphysics from the Bible as opposed to other sources and to then derive our macro narrative from the Bible as well <clears throat> by relying on this metaphysics that we just determined. So essentially, these things have to have priority when you're doing interpretation of scripture, if you're gonna do sola scriptura theology. So the first step in a sola scriptura theology is to, to take the whole document, because remember we talked about needing to use the, the entire document as a whole. We, we have to rely on all the data and then looking at all this data to determine what its metaphysical perspective is and then trying to figure out what the unifying element is. What is the story that brings all this stuff together? Now, if we come to the scripture and we bring to it an incorrect metaphysics, it ends up leading us to an incorrect macro narrative. And this ends up giving us interpretative discre discrepancies. So we end up actually misunderstanding parts of the Bible because of this mismatch between the, the macro narrative and the scripture, between the metaphysics and the scripture. So it doesn't matter how careful our exegesis after that, we can, we can read the text with, with the utmost diligence and, and be super careful in everything to, to, to read it exactly as, as we suppose it's meant to be read. And we're still gonna end up with discrepancies because we, we're using the wrong macro narrative, we're using the wrong metaphysics. Um, and if it turns out that this has been done, this could be a very sound explanation for why Protestantism ended up being so fragmented. Remember we talked about how the church fathers um, relied on Greek metaphysics and, and Greek philosophy. So if Protestants, instead of focusing on the scripture alone, <clears throat> went to the fathers, uh, the writings of the church fathers for guidance in interpretation. And if the church fathers were relying on, on Greek metaphysical constructs, constructs instead of the Bible's metaphysical construct, then that could very well explain why uh, Protestantism ended up being so divided and so fragmented. Um, now today, if you look at the world around you, you know, we have access right now to, to most of the world as opposed to the majority of history when, when people were kind of limited to wherever they, they grew up. But today, if you look around the world, there's, there's many dozens of different metaphysical perspectives. Uh, people have very different views of reality depending on, on what religion they're from, what part of the world they're from, what culture they're from. And we've kind of found a way to work around it. You know, we, we found a way to coexist. But for much of history, um, usually most of society only viewed one metaphysical or one philosophical perspective as the correct one. So <clears throat> for the earliest church fathers, we already mentioned that their, their uh, perspective was Platonism. So this is maybe the first two, 200 years or so of Christian history. Uh, by the time Augustine came around, uh, philosophy has, had already changed to Neoplatonism and then Augustine was influenced by that and probably allowed that to influence his theology. Uh, if you speed up another 500 years into the future, we get to the time of Thomas Aquinas and he introduced uh, Aristotelianism into Christian theology and essentially resynthesized all of Christian theology based on an Aristotelian framework, which has a lot of similarities with Platonism, but also has significant differences. And that's why you see this difference between Catholicism and Protestantism, for example, which kind of went backwards to the time of Augustine and went back to some of the previous uh, philosophical frameworks. And of course, after, you know, after the Reformation, we have the Enlightenment, and now you have <clears throat> several other perspectives come on the scene. And then eventually by today, we have, <clears throat> excuse me, by today we have modern science and modern science um, kind of replaced a lot of the territory that used to belong to philosophy in the past. And besides this, we have, like I said, many other perspectives throughout the world. So um, today we have all these different points of view, but in history, people just seem to come from one perspective or another. And at whatever time in history you were at, 
you assumed that that was the only valid or the only possible perspective. And then you expected your theology to go along with that. Otherwise you would think that theology was incorrect. So it makes sense that Christian theologians try to synthesize Christian theology with the various metaphysical perspectives that people took for granted at those particular times in history. But that said, you gotta keep in mind that Christianity has readjusted its, its view of reality over and over again because philosophy keeps changing. So maybe it's time that we rethink this need to constantly resynthesize Christian theology based on whatever is currently popular, whatever everybody takes for granted at this point in time. Today, the majority of people <clears throat> uh, that are even exposed to what I'm doing here will probably dismiss it and say, we don't need a Sola Scriptura theology. We need a theology that lines up with, uh, with modern science. But all they're really doing is continuing to do what Christians have been doing for 2000 years, which is to keep readjusting Christian theology based on modern or current trends at that point in history. So maybe it's time we step back and we say, no, let's fix on, on something that's more stable and let's figure out what that theology is. And then we'll figure out how to, to harmonize everything else from there. All right, so uh, there's a few other Things to close with here, <clears throat> there's certain people within either uh, conservative Protestant or uh, Catholic circles that will say, well, no, um, the, the philosophical perspectives of the church fathers were trustworthy. And the reason is because there was a sort of tag team endorsement. Um, the philosophers came to these conclusions by pure reasoning. And then the Christian fathers, uh, agreed with those, with those philosophical perspectives because uh, they had received Christianity from the apostles themselves and they, they realized that the two harmonized. So there's a sort of tactic endorsement and we should just accept that the, the philosophy of, the, of that period of time is the correct philosophy. But you know that's one possible hypothesis again. We could say, sure, maybe that's what happened. But also something else that could have happened is that um, people just took for granted the fact that whatever they believed to be real at that time was in fact real. And just like people today take for granted certain things and chances are two, three, 500 years from, from now, we might discover new things that will completely change the way we view reality. And then we'll have to change our perspective again. But at every time in history, people just take for granted the knowledge that they have as if that's the only possible conclusion that they could come to. So again, there's two possibilities here history and Christian, Christian theology has already uh, focused on one of those possibilities for a long time. But uh, now we're looking at the other possibility that maybe the church fathers misunderstood or misinterpreted scripture, misinterpreted Christianity because they were so immersed in their own worldview prior to accepting Christianity. Okay, <clears throat> now, one of the things I'm going to be talking about in the very last video in this series is that human beings only have two avenues to knowledge. They have our, we have our reason and our senses. And if we rely on our reason and our senses, we're limited because our senses cannot access metaphysics. Our senses can only access the physical world. And our reason might be able to go a little bit further than the senses, but it could only, it only, it could only come up with guesses. You could say, well, maybe the metaphysical reality is like this, Maybe it's like this, maybe it's something else, but there's no way to know for sure. So we need to have a sort of, sort of epistemic humility here because we don't actually have the capacity to know by ourselves what ultimate reality is like. And if it is, if the reality, if, if, the, if God chose to reveal that reality to us through the scripture, then we need to let the scripture speak for itself as, as opposed to superimposing a metaphysic on the scripture. We need to come to it and look at the version of reality that scripture portrays and use that to interpret what it has to say after that. Okay, so sola scriptura means you use a bit of biblical metaphysic and then you develop a biblical macro narrative based on that metaphysic and then you work with limited errancy and use that kind of a methodology to decipher everything else. Uh, there's one question that we will have to address in the next couple of episodes, and that's the question of self-authentication. Um, and what this means is that 
most other uh, theological approaches, most of the other epistemic models that I mentioned in previous episodes, because they rely so much on philosophy to, to, to develop a basis for their theology, they also rely on philosophy to explain why people can trust the Christian religion. So the question is, if we don't rely as much on philosophy and we rely more on scripture, uh, what basis do we, do we have to, to show the world that scripture is correct? Because I mean, anybody could invent a book uh, just because we're actually able to figure out what the book says doesn't mean that the book is correct. So we're gonna have to address that in one of the future videos as well. Uh, in the next episode, I'm gonna take the methodology that I described in this video and then actually apply it and, and we can see what conclusions we come up with.